I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Anthony McGowan is one of the most widely acclaimed young adult authors in the UK. His books have won several major awards and have been shortlisted for many more. He has also written highly regarded adult fiction as well as books for young readers. He has a PhD on the history of beauty and has taught philosophy and creative writing. He lives in London with his wife and his two children. Anthony's latest novel is Dogs of the Deadlands. Welcome, Anthony. Nice to be here. Your latest novel, Dogs of the Deadlands, has been named a Times Book of the Week. What can you tell us about it? I was trying to count up how many books I've written over my my rather long career now. I lost count somewhere in between the late 40s and early 50s. So there's a lot of books. But this is the only one that begins on a specific named day. So it begins on the 25th of April, 1986, when a seven-year-old girl for her seventh birthday party, she's given a puppy. And I don't know if you're a dog owner, but if you are, you know that that moment, that instant moment of connection when you bond mm-hmm. forever, when you meet your puppy and when the puppy meets you. So they form that instant bond of love, the little girl, the little dog. Sadly, the next day, the local nuclear power, power station in Chernobyl blows up uh, reactor number two or is it number four i can't remember uh, and all the people have to be evacuated from their small town of pripyat um so she gets gets one night of of pure bliss with her dog mm. and they're separated the, the people are evacuated but can't take their pets with them she has to leave her dog behind a heartrending scene as you can kind of imagine and from that point on the my, my story splits into the two narratives it follows uh, natasha's life as she grows up is kind of successful but always with this puppy-shaped hole in her heart. So she never, never really manages to achieve happiness. But the main narrative follows the lives of the dogs left behind. Her puppy's called Zoya. Uh, Zoya manages to survive. That's part of the story. Has her own puppies. And it particularly follows the next generation of, of dogs as they're trying to survive in, in what's now this wilderness. As, as you, you may know, when the people were evacuated from around the Chernobyl plant, which is now in Ukraine, was in the Soviet Union, the area became rewilded. So the, the wild animals moved back in. So it's now an incredibly rich environmental area, although some parts are still very heavily contaminated. So <laughs> I kind of rushed through the story there. So it's a kind of animal adventure story about the dogs trying to survive in this dangerous wilderness and a Natasha's story as well, with a potential for a possibly happy stroke, sad ending, one of those endings. <laughs> First of all, yes, I'm a huge dog lover. I would have 20 if my husband would let me. Mm. I would never get anything written, but you know, it would <laughs> be a lot of fun. Yeah. But when I was doing the research for this interview and I saw that, that this novel was set around Chernobyl, yeah. it was very memorable in my life. I mean, I was on the other side of the world, but I was 16 years old. And I remember thinking, there's going to be this cloud that's going to drift all over the world. Yeah, and absolutely. I think- for so many of us, we believed it was in check until all this stuff's been going on with Ukraine, and now it's back in our mind again. Mm-hmm. But what is the lesson of Chernobyl for the pups in the novel? Oh, well, you know, it's a really interesting question, this, so on scientific grounds and social grounds and political grounds. Um, I, I was at college when it happened, and I had friends mm-hmm. who were studying Russian in living in Kiev, so the, the nearest big city. Um, so like for you, it was a huge part of my life. And mm-hmm. again, there was this fear, especially in, in Europe, 
about this cloud that was going to come over and contaminate mm-hmm. our food sources. A bit of that happened, but it was never quite the, the disaster that, that we feared. But the area around the plant was obviously very seriously contaminated. But again, there, there were sort of two zones. There was what's an area which is known as the Red Forest, where everything was killed. So it's called the Red Forest because the t- trees died and it looks red. So every living thing there perished. And that area is still too contaminated for anything to survive. You can go there for like 10 minutes and that's all, all you're allowed. But then there's a wider area around there, the kind of forests and farms and fields in, in that part of the Ukraine and, and uh, Belarusia that was mildly contaminated. And again, scientists thought that perhaps that might have really serious consequences for the wildlife. But it turns out they can get by just about. And so the big plus for the wildlife, so you had bear and wolves, most notably for the book, and bison and lynx and moose or elk, as we call them, all all kind of moved in. So there were some mild effects of the radioactivity. So there were some slightly higher rate of of birth defects among the young, but the much bigger plus for them was that there weren't any people there. So that's why it's now such a kind of rich area. You know, particularly that the animals that that most kind of grabbed my my attention, maybe you write the book, was the wolf packs moved in. And the idea for the story came when I I watched, I think it was a National Geographic documentary about this rewilding of the area. And there's one image of a, a wolf pack had taken over an old abandoned farmyard. And one particular wolf kind of jumped from an outbuilding then onto the roof of this farmhouse, this now ruined farmhouse, and kind of howled. Uh, But then in the background, you could just about make out the nuclear plant. (laughs) And that kind of juxtaposition of the ultimate wild creature, the wolf, in this abandoned human landscape and the ruined plant in the background made me think there's a story here. So what did your research look like? Well, it was quite intense because most of those other 50 odd books that I've written are kind of based on my memories or experience of life and my process as a writer. And I know that other writers were always interested in this was just, it's just basically to sit down and start typing and the book comes out. But for this, I had to do a lot of research. I had to get the science right so I did lots of research about the ways in which dogs and wolves interact when they encounter each other, which is p- pretty brutal. I don't know if you've kind of come across any of this, but you know, dogs and wolves are basically the same species, that they can completely interbreed and, and have fertile offspring. But generally speaking, when, it, when a wolf and a dog meet, it's very bad news for the dog, you know, that the wolf kills and eats the dog. It's not even a fight. It takes seconds, <laughs> usually until it's done. So essentially the only time that that's not the outcome is if it, I'm not sure how to put this delicately, if it's, a, as I said, a, a daddy wolf and a mummy dog, and they become mm-hmm. special friends. <laughs> that's the only time that the dog special doesn't die. Special friends, I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's kind of what happens in my story. So I had to do all that kind of research, lots and lots of research about the way wolf packs kind of work and this kind of evolving research on that, also about the ecology of the area. This book took me over two years to write, which is a lot longer than I normally take over a book. And a good year of that was just simply reading every single scientific paper that I could about this whole field. Interesting that you were writing this before the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I know. And I had no idea that it would be kind of back in the news again. And I'm often asked in interviews about my kind of take on this. And yeah. I, I just don't know what to say other than the things that we all say about it's this terrible tragedy, this awful thing for the Ukrainian people. Indeed, a tragedy for the Russian people have got involved in this through the folly and madness of Putin. My book's about dogs and wolves in that area. And they they don't have strong political views, the dogs and the wolves. (laughs) The nuclear disaster itself, which is in the kind of background, even that's not the main issue that that provides the world of the story. But it's not really about that Chernobyl disaster. It's about the consequences for the lives of, as you said, of the the dogs and the wolves that live there. Really interesting. I noticed that you include a lot of animals in your books. 
I mean, that kind of goes without saying. In, yeah. in fact, one of them was how to teach philosophy to your dog and includes details about your own dog, Monty. Yeah, and who's around have, here somewhere. He might he might pop in at some point. I'm not sure. Well, he's very welcome. <laughs> I've gleaned philosophy from my dogs, but never the other way around. I've had a hard time yeah. teaching my dogs, you know, to go outside where they're supposed to, much less. I you hear know. you. <laughs> so how did that go for you, teaching Monty? That book's on a little bit of a tangent to my rest of my career. I mean, I generally write fiction, uh, but that's right, a non-fiction right. book. It's an introduction to philosophy, that book, because I, I did a pre-degree, PhD in philosophy. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my intellectual background. My publisher asked me to write an introduction to philosophy. And so I, it's essentially a series of dialogues between me and, and Monty, where he's the kind of pupil asking questions. So it's a kind of Socratic, Platonic dialogue between me and Monty oh, with, with some kind of dog stuff thrown there as well. But it's basically meant to be a fun introduction to the subject. I don't know about your dog. Uh, have you got do- dogs or dog? I have two dogs. I have a rescue and I have a little mini Dotson who doesn't think there's any bad in the world because he's not a rescue. <laughs> Most <laughs> evil and terrifying dog, the Daxon. So, so but okay, well, Monty is not a particularly philosophical dog. He's, he's a Maltese terrier. And when you read about them, they're always described as being kind of mid-table in terms of intelligence. But basically, he's only got one trick now, which is not to go to the toilet in our flat. That's his only trick. <laughs> one of my earlier children's books featured Dachshunds quite heavily. Did you know the what a Dachshund is? What they were bred for? To hunt badgers, right? Hunt badgers, yes, because mm-hmm. Dach is the gem of a badger. So they're serious animals. They're, they're courageous and brave. Teddy is not courageous. <laughs> he does go after some bunnies. He's a mini Dachshund. He might think he's courageous, but he's a big weenie. He's a okay, sweetheart. but then also Dachshunds, they're, kind of, they're quite clever, mm-hmm. clever enough to realize how ridiculous they look. So with their little legs and long body that they know they look stupid, that fills them with an inner rage. And also they run at the same speed as a human child. So if one starts <laughs> to chase you, you never escape, <laughs> but they never quite catch you. So it can go on forever. Anyway, Jack Jackson's. He's a hot mess. He's an Isabella. So he's like the same color as a Weimaraner. Uh, and okay. he looks like a baked potato when he's running around. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I, and before him, my last dog passed away right before we got him. Last dog was a Great Dane. So I went from a Great oh, Dane. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a 160-pound Harlequin yeah, Great Dane, huge. Sophie, yeah. to little Teddy. I love all dogs, though. I, I think a writer needs a dog. It's vital. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Connect you with the world. Were there movies or books or stage performances that made you think, oh, I might want to be a writer? I guess for me... And probably for nearly all writers, my way into writing was, first of all, through a love of reading, you know, as a brew in me as a teenager, when I, I was voracious, as you were, as every writer is, it's one thing we all have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, but also around the same period, I realised that, that I didn't suck at it. You know, at school, when you got to write essays or, or, or stories, and you get that positive feedback loop where you get a good mark, and that makes you love it more. So, I mean, from my late teens, I thought it might be part of my life. But then I also, you know, kind of assumed that what I would be was a, a literary novelist and I'd write one novel every 10 years and maybe teach in a university. Now, that was kind of my life plan, but it didn't quite work out. It's my PhD and I never got a job teaching in a university. Found myself in a really boring job working for the government in a dull office doing dull work, surrounded by slightly <laughs> dull people. Uh, and I, I began to write a book. It's a book that eventually was published as Hellbent, which is about a teenage boy who dies and goes to hell. It's a kind of retelling of Dante's Inferno. Originally, I, I'd heard this, there was this category called YA, which was young adult, but I didn't know quite what it meant. I thought that young adults were people like me in their 20s rather than teenagers. I wrote this book. It's a slightly mad 
comedy about death, I suppose. I thought it was a work of great genius, sent it off the way that we do as writers, thinking it's going to get a massive book deal, got universally rejected uh, as being just too strange, not like anything else, too mad. But eventually I, I got myself an agent uh, who said, write something less mad. So I wrote an adult thriller called Stag Hunt, which did get published. And then because that was published, I was no longer a kind of weirdo outsider. And so someone else published my book, Hellbent. But I changed it to be more obviously a book for teenagers. That's a really complicated, boring story. Sorry. Uh, but my, no, it's my a great book story. Much better than my <laughs> adult book. And so I found myself almost by default writing for teenagers. Yeah. So that's what I became. You, you know, it was quite easy for me to write about teenagers because... I think it's nearly all men in particular of my generation. We've never quite left our teenage years behind. It's still our core. That's pretty sexist. Maybe for women too. I don't know. So I could channel that inner teenager very easily. So most of my books are probably aimed at teenagers. But then also I had that idea that I was still in some way an adult writer. So I'd occasionally write adult books. And also that the thwarted philosopher in me wanted to write a philosophy book. So my career is impossible to copy for another writer. And also... I think that in my career in particular, but perhaps all writers' careers, there's so many times when chance played that role, when it wasn't a conscious, rational thing that I did that got me published or not published. It was just that coin came up on the right side. So, so I've had a very, very strange, diverse career that's of almost no use as a model for any other aspiring writer. You, you couldn't do it like me because I couldn't do it like me again. It would, I'd have a completely different path through my, my life. But you could never be that successful if not for the talent and the hard work. I mean, it's not chance that got you here. Yeah, I think that those I mean, things chance, are... chance got you the opportunities, but you had to bring the other two. I, I guess, but um, I honestly think that, um, I, mean, I teach a lot of creative writing. I don't know if you, you do much teaching. And I, I meet so many brilliantly talented writers in, in my teaching experience. The awful truth is most of them won't get published. Just because of those chances. So yeah, you, you need that ability to construct a good sentence and then beyond that, a good paragraph, beyond that, a good chapter, a good book. I think that's quite widespread. You know, I actually think that the the real things that distinguish uh, doing air quotes, <laughs> successful writing from the ones that don't quite make it, it's just that determination to keep going, that ability to carry on producing chunks of prose. I mean, some of the best writers in terms of sentences I've ever come across never quite turn those sentences into a book. Uh, no publisher ever published half a book or, or a really great chapter. You've got to produce at the end of the day a, a book. And that is a kind of, it's not even a talent thing, particularly it's a grit. It's a kind of just that determination to sit there and do it until you've written those thousand words in that day or even 500 words in that day. When all is said and done, what would you like your readers to remember about your novels? Oh, well, what I try and get is the most intense, extreme reaction I can. So I've often had discussions with, with my writer friends about this. So it's always a terribly simplistic thing to say there's two types of anything. <laughs> there's nearly always an infinite variety of things. I kind of simplify it by thinking there's the kind of writer who, for them, writing is a kind of internal process. They're creating this work of this beautiful thing inside them, a kind of Fabergé egg which they then lay and present to the world. That's one paradigm. My paradigm is much, much more that writing's a communicative act, a thing that's created between me and the reader. So I'm always in, interested if, if my readers, are they laughing? Are they crying? Are they excited? So I'm thinking about the reader the whole time. I, I don't think that one way is better than the other. These are two different ways that can both produce good works of, of literature. So what I want to do, so a lot of my early books are, are trying very hard to be funny. <laughs> so I'm trying to make you laugh. 
I'm trying to make you just put that book down and laugh or that that feeling of glee you get when you read a really funny, funny sentence or, or paragraphs. So that's one reaction. I also, I love making my readers cry. So hopefully people that read The Dogs of the Deadland, there are going to be points here when they cry uncontrollably. That's my goal. I'm evil in that way. I want to, <laughs> I want to inflict pain and suffering. Perhaps my, my most successful book is a book called Lark, uh, which is actually the fourth book in a series about two brothers growing up in poverty in the, in the north of England. There's a prize in the UK called the Carnegie Medal, where you get a gold medal mm-hmm. out of it. It's quite, quite nice. But anyway, yeah. so when that medal became more popular than many of my other books, but nobody has read that book without, at the end, weeping. <laughs> Funny, because we have something in common there. This is my first novel. Oh, Lark. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just novel. come out? Or is that uh, about It came to... out a year ago. Let's see, a year ago, April. And it's well, women's fiction. We're in different uh, genres. Goodbye, Lark. Love Joy is my debut. That's just an unusual name. It's like, oh, I guess. Oh, I guess. That's interesting. Someone who's written about 50 books, I think you should enjoy your first one. I mean, really, really luxuriating that beautiful feeling of your first book. It's a great time. So, congratulations. Well, thank you. As a young person, who were the authors that you enjoyed reading? I'm 57 years old. I'm quite an old guy now. YA wasn't really a thing when I was uh, reading. So, I was obsessed with Tolkien when I was younger. I was actually at, um, at what we call junior school. Um, so when I was nine years old, when a teacher gave me the Lord of the Rings and I sort of mm-hmm. learned to read by reading the Lord of the Rings. So that was always a big part of my childhood. I, I read lots of animal adventures and I suppose that The Dogs of the Deadland is channeling some of that. So a big book for me when I was younger was a book called Watership Down by mm-hmm. Richard Adams, which is a big book in the UK. I think less less well-known in, in the States, uh, but, but also uh, two books by Jack London, which were crucial for this book. So The mm-hmm. Call of the Wild and White Fang which I read in school, but then reread for this. I'd forgotten how amazing they are. The incredibly brutal, violent, but true books that, that were really in the DNA of, of my book. So I actually read more YA when I was an adult writer of YA, you know, survey the field. Right. And also I suppose that back then you tended to, as a teenager, to read the kind of adult books that appealed to teenager. So people like like the great Stephen King was was mm-hmm. uh, was a kind of book you you kind of gravitate towards. So it's that sort of thing rather than actual YA. So yeah. I, you know I, I do feel a little bit a bit undercooked when it comes to to YA. When people ask my advice about contemporary YA, which is clearly an incredibly vibrant and rich field at the moment, maybe even more in the in the states and in the UK. But there's lots of amazing stuff being produced from that. What well, is that a writer called Angie Thomas who? Is uh, huge love in America, but also massive in, in the UK, quite rightly. So it's a great, vibrant field. It's a field I think I'm about to leave, though. You know, I've written probably 25 YA books or books aimed at teenagers. Mm-hmm. I think I might have used up all my experiences. It's partly an age thing that it's time for the for the ones who are more closer to that that readership. So I almost feel that, that what I'll do in the future is go a bit younger, where that child is kind of universal and then older. Someone actually pointed out a while ago, there's... Um, there's almost never a mobile phone in any of my YA books. And that's partly because I'm remembering back to the days when I was a teenager and they hadn't even been thought of, apart from the Star Trek communicator. Uh, but also that way that, that that phones, mobile phones, ruin plots. I hadn't thought about that, but there's so much that you have to integrate into your plot lines. My stuff's contemporary. So, you know, I worry, like, are we on the phone too much? Are they getting too many text messages? Are they, we have too many interruptions that are, telephonic but then in real yeah. life we have too many interruptions that are telephonic yeah, yeah, yeah. so what are you going to do you know back to what you were saying about YA and what we read 
growing up and, and in our teens, I don't think, and maybe I just didn't read YA. Maybe there was a healthy YA catalog, but I don't remember as much YA then as there is mm-hmm. now. And I wonder if it it just has become, it's better supported. I mean, I think that there were YA books back then, but it's become a yeah. much bigger part of the market. So, so what, what did you read back when you were a teenager? What were your, yeah. your kind of hot books? Reading up, it would have been Stephen King. And then on the women's fiction side, like Judith Krantz, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> which I probably shouldn't have been reading, but I was, but you know, we all kind of step up to that line and want to look over and see what's yeah, happening of course. ahead of us. What are you reading now? been a huge Cormac McCarthy fan for, for years. So I've just got my hands on a copy of the new one, The Passenger, which I'm going through. I don't know if you, if you like Cormac McCarthy, but he's such a, a powerful writer. He infects your style. <laughs> so I totally sense that the book I'm writing at the moment is suddenly become much more Cormac McCarthy just because of his amazing prose style, his darkness and his brilliance. So I think all writers are in, in, are in this dialogue with all of the writers that none of us are ever cut off from that world of influence, you know, this right. kind of intertextual connection that we all have. Obviously, you're not really too slavish, but it's just, it's this great fund of, of inspiration and energy and ideas. And I don't know, I'm not sure there's a single good writer, never mind great writer, that isn't in that web, that network of the literary texts embedded oh. in it. I know for me, when I feel like I'm in a rut, I'm a big audiobook listener and I will turn on an audiobook and I don't know what it is, but something in my brain clicks and all of Mm. a sudden I'm getting these ideas that take me back to my manuscript. We talk about the elements of good writing a lot on this podcast and mostly to authors of fiction that's geared to adults. Do you find that there are any of those elements that are different that make YA work? So my first three books for teenagers were called Hellbent, which is this kind of retelling of Dante's Inferno. It's a very dense, complicated YA book. It's not for reluctant readers. It's for fairly advanced teenage readers. My second book's called Henry Tumor. In the US, it was published as Jack Tumor. It's a kind of retelling of a Shakespeare play called Henry the Fourth, Part One. It's about a boy with a talking brain tumor. The brain tumor is based on a Shakespearean character called Falstaff. So again, quite a complex text. My third book's called The Knife That Killed Me, which is a kind of retelling of the Homer's Iliad. So these are all quite complex, dense, I suppose quite literary texts. Mm-hmm. which could be read by adults as well as children. In fact, probably most of the readers are adults rather than teenagers. But then uh, about halfway through my career, I-, I feared that I might be trying to work a bit too hard, perhaps being a bit of a show-off, trying to prove to the world <laughs> how many of the books I'd read, how how great I was at this intertextuality thing, how good I was at complex metaphors. And I, I thought, can I try and be a bit more true? So I began to write this series now called The Truth of Things, which culminated in, in my book, Lark about these two brothers in the north of England. And there I I pared the style right down. So the language is suddenly much more simple and direct, of the kind that might well appeal much more to more reluctant readers. And I think that that process of pairing down genuinely made me a much better writer. Mm -hmm. So even not even thinking about the prospective readers, just simply the quality of the prose, I think, actually was improved by that tempering and the fire of, of simplification. So early books, complex, literary, show-offy. I'm not trying to diss that early early work, but definitely once I paired it back and simplified and thought more about those fundamentals of any any text, which is your characters, that world they're in, and that plot, it just made me slightly better, I think. But I don't think there's any one route to good writing. There isn't any one kind of good writing. 
So, you know, I mentioned Cormac McCarthy. My favourite book by him is Blood Meridian, the most incredibly complex, difficult text. You know, I know a lot of words. Uh, you know, it's been my job for a long time now. But on every page of Blood Meridian, there's probably four words I've literally never come across. Wow. <laughs> and you've got to, that's almost a definition of bad writing if you've got to stop and look stuff up. And yet he's a great writer. So there's no one path to, to being a good writer. You've got to find your own path there, I think. Super interesting response. You kind of talk about when you did the more literary thing, and then Mm -hmm. when you pared it down, we're told we shouldn't be on the page as much as Mm -hmm. let the story. And it sounds like that's where your writing went. Yeah, that is what made me a better writer. Then equally, some of my favorite writers produce flashy, look at me prose. (laughs) Another big influence on me was a really huge figure back in the aged the nice in the UK and earlier than that. I think less in America, a guy called Anthony Burgess. He's most famous for writing The Clockwork Orange, made into oh, a yeah. movie. His prose is very flashy and show-offy and look how complex and clever I am. I-, I loved him as a writer. So again, I don't think there's that one way to be good at almost anything, whether it's playing tennis or football or writing. There's a myriad ways to be good at what we do and also many ways to suck at it too. <laughs> <laughs> what is your advice? For new writers? Well, the most platitudinous one is to steep yourself in literature, to, to read. I mean, often I give advice to young writers when I visit schools. And there, a lot of the best young writers I meet have these enormously ambitious plans to write three-volume fantasy epics. And the truth is that for most young people, there's not enough time in their lives for that sort of project. So they end up never finishing anything. I think it's really important for writers to finish things, to write the end. And so I tend to advise younger writers to just write poetry and finish a poem in a, in a day or, or even in, in a lunchtime or then short stories to get that satisfaction of producing a, a perfect thing in the world. That isn't quite the same for adult writers. I still think that thinking about perfecting your prose is really good. And the way I try and do that is by reading a lot of poetry. Even though I'm a prose writer, I also write some terrible doggerel. <laughs> I always have done. So my genuine bit of advice is whenever you go to the bathroom, right, make sure there's a book of poetry in the bathroom and read one poem and don't leave the bathroom until you've read that poem. And if you do that every day, then you'll read three or four poems a day and that will make you a better writer. Thank you, Anthony. I've enjoyed it, Chris. That was brilliant. Thank you. To learn more, visit anthonymcgowan.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support. 